I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto. We're kicking in autumn, October 3rd, and it is Roland Garros week one in the books, and we have the round of 16 set to begin tomorrow in Paris. It's been a wild and wonderful tournament, a wet tournament also, a cold tournament, um, but lots to love about what's been going on at Roland Garros in 2020. Today, we have a special program. We learned how to do a three-way Skype call. So I've got Eric Goodris, Richard Pagliaro, and myself engaged in a conversation about the highlights of week one. We also, of course, look ahead to what we might be seeing in week two of Roland Garros. Major topics being discussed. Of course, the Big three on the men's side. We're calling the big three for this tournament. Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and Dominic Team. But we also discussed the improbability of some of these results. I mean, how many players outside of the top 100 made the second week? Six is the answer. Six players ranked outside of the top 100 have made it through to the round of 16 across the men's and women's singles draws at Roland Garros. Five players that reached the round of 16 had never won a main draw match at a Grand Slam before, so some dreams are being realized on the Terrebat 2 in Paris this year. It's been cool, and we should talk about it right now, so why don't we? All right, so this is pretty cool. This is the first time we're doing this, and I've got Eric Goodris and Richard Pagliaro, who are like palling out with me during the uh, this Roland Garros and doing a lot of work for Tennis Now. You can find all that work at www.tennisnow.com. So check us out and check out a lot of the things that we've all been writing. And now we're here to do it in a different format. We're going to talk about things. So hello, you guys. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm doing great. <laughs> Both of you guys at the same time, three, three ways a new concept for me. It's pretty exciting, right? <laughs> the technology is amazing. So listen, first thing I want to talk about, Richard and I did a podcast a couple of days ago. We talked about the first two rounds, pretty much broke it down. But since then, we've, got, we've kind of shaved down the singles draw to 16, and it's, it's continued to be a crazy tournament, very improbable. A lot of players outside of the top 100 winning into the round of 16. Several players that had never won matches at majors before winning into the round of 16. It's been a little bit nuts. It's kind of what we expected, but I wanted to get your guys' takes on this. Eric, why don't you start us off? What is surprising to you about Roland Garros 2020? Uh, I think it's just surprising that, as you said, so many of these lower-ranked players or unheard-of players even are just sort of embracing 
the moment and embracing the conditions. And I, and maybe in some ways they feel like it's an op- it's a bigger opportunity to them. Kind of similar to what we saw in New York with the U.S. Open because of the lack of fans. Um, and it, in some ways it still doesn't quite feel like a major, so it takes some of the pressure off of them. They can just go onto the court and they just feel like they're just playing a match and they're not it doesn't have that intense atmosphere. So I think that might be helping them a little bit um, uh, just to treat it like a regular match and not a match at a, at a major. Richard, give me the craziest name, the most surprising name that is through to the second week at Roland Garros. I would say one of the biggest surprises for me is Sebi Corda, even though we all knew, you know, he's obviously a great junior career and he has the tennis pedigree with Peter Carter, his mom also, but just you know, to come through at that age and play as well as he has. And also the Isner, even though they know each other, to, you know, to take a guy, an experienced guy like that out, uh, that's really surprised me. I didn't think he would be the last American guy standing. But it's, it's exciting as well because he seems like a personable guy and really pumped up for the opportunity. But I think all the, you know, the qualifiers, uh, that's been, that's kind of surprised me. And, uh just some of the reclamation projects like like pass after that devastating U.S. Open loss to bounce back as he has. And also uh, Zverev that he kind of shook off what happened in that U.S. Open final has put together a fine tournament so far. I, I really am excited about Sebi Korda, Sebastian Korda. The qualifier had never won a match at a Grand Slam. Starts off with a win over Andreas Seppi. We know how experienced and how savvy of a competitor Seppi is then beats John Isner, and then a straight setter in the third round. He gets to face Nadal, who he named his cat after. Who wants to take that and talk about Sebi's cat? Or should we, should we move on to another subject? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? All right, let's move on. Uh... <laughs> um, surprises, let's stick with it a bit, because I think it really is a theme, as we discussed. And how about the women's side? Eric, any surprises that you see there, or anything that's particularly thrilling or out of the ordinary? Well, I mean, that match that just ended, the one between uh, Daniel Collins and Garby Muguruza, I mean, I thought Muguruza had that match, but uh, again, Collins is one of those players that just keeps hanging around, and... um, that's going to be disappointing for Muguru because I actually thought she had a chance to go for a deep run. But uh, that's that's this French Open, as always is for the women. You never know what's going to happen. And, um, man, there's been some really great stories. Uh, the, the Italian Trevisan with her win. And, um, wow, this, this this match coming up between Podoroska and, I'm going to say her name right, Krejcikova, who used yes. to be a pupil of the late Yana Nevada. I mean, what an opportunity. Yeah, there for those two women. So, any anything can happen at the French Open. I mean, as we know, this is the ten year anniversary of the great Francesca Schiavone winning her championship. As she yes. proved anything can happen. So, especially with these conditions, and um, like I said, I think some of these players that have never had this kind of opportunity. They just go out there and feel like they've got nothing to lose. So, yeah. why not? Yeah, very good point. Trevisan had never won a match at a major before. Qualified, gets to face Kiki Burtons in the next round. After beating Coco Goff and Maria Sakkari, that was a little bit crazy. Podoroska, no wins at a major before. Krejcikova was about to give up on singles completely, as, as and you mentioned, of course, it was Jana Novotna's birthday yesterday, which made her victory all the more emotional. Um, who else is a big surprise? Paula Bedosa, I didn't see her being in week two. What do you got for me, Richard? 
Well, even uh, Zhang Sweat, you know, is going to play Petra next round. That This is her best Roland Garros run. I would almost argue the whole entire bottom half is a surprise, except for Kennan. I mean, Petra's a former semifinalist there, but you could almost say everybody on that bottom half is like, wow, I didn't expect, especially now with, Gar, um, you know, Muguruza's out now. So that's really surprised me, and... I guess Trevisan is a really big surprise because I hadn't seen a lot of her before this tournament. Also, her you know her off court story with with all she went through for that two year period, and she just plays with so much passion. She's got a big scream and grunt too, and you know that Coco match was high drama, so she's shown me a lot. She just has a lot of spirit, like Eric said. You know the tenth anniversary of uh, of Francesca. Nobody played with more passion than her. And I think the other point is, look, I'm a big Hingis fan. I'll never forget when Eva Maioli came through. Nobody was talking about her, and she beat Hingis in the final. So maybe we'll have another, you know, sort of Andrusova, somebody out of maybe left field that we didn't expect to make the final. Yeah, good points. I mean, we've got a couple Slam champs still hanging in there. Simona. Anchoring that top half, she plays Igas Fiontek in the round of 16, a matchup I'm definitely looking forward to. Petra Kvitova still in it. And Sophia Cannon, Grand Slam champion, is the third remaining Slam champion, I think, if I'm not missing anyone. So there's a little bit of normalcy in there. It was nice to see Cannon get through today. She'll face Fiona Farrell of France, who's been a cool story. But, I mean, yeah, it's so much fun, and you're right, it's very wide open. It's really going to be hard to predict. I mean, you'd like to think that the Slam champs, Kvitova and Halep, are going to have a big advantage with their experience. But as Eric mentioned, what happened to Garbina today? And she's so good at Roland Garros. I mean, former champion, always plays well here. And just kind of like let that one slip away, it felt like. She looks so flat to me at the end. I don't know if it was nerves or fatigue, or but also to just keep playing Collins' backhand. Like, you got to be kidding. That's her best shot. I felt like she should have went at the forehand, although at match point, ironically, you know, Collins hit the forehand, almost a winner to end it. But I just thought, felt her serve got away from her, the second serve, and we've seen that with really, really talented players across the board these last two slams with Zverev in New York and Coco in this tournament. And I felt today in the critical moments of serve, the serve let her down, and I agree with you guys. I mean, I really thought she was poised to make to make a deep run, and also just her 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 history this season. Every tournament, the quarterfinals are better. She's really performed, so that that's a deeply wounding loss, I would think, for her because she was in control of that match. You know, the other thing with Garby, though, you, she can win big, but you look at her history; she's won, I think, one clay court title, and that was Roland Garros. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that or really. Could be wrong about that, but I, off the top of my head, I can't remember her winning another on any uh, any other clay title. I hope you're not wrong about that because we've got like seven million listeners that could potentially <laughs> file a lawsuit. Um, Believe me, it wouldn't be the first. <laughs> um, uh, surface talk. I mean, guys, we were talking about the the, the exact specifications of the new. Um, tennis ball, the new Wilson ball that they're using in Roland Garros. We're talking about how much moisture per um, per micrometer would affect the pace of play of the clay. Has it really mattered that much, Eric Gudris? No. I mean, <laughs> especially if you're looking at the men's side, people were very concerned about Rafael Nadal. And um, uh, Richard, I know you, you mentioned, uh, I think Lindsay Davenport on Tennis Chan- Channel mentioned that throughout his career, Nadal is played at Roland Garros with three different types of balls made by three different manufacturers. So, right, right. I, I mean, these, these champions like Nadal and Djokovic, they adapt to the conditions, whether it's raining, whether it's snowing or what they just adapt and they find a way to win. And I, 
especially in these early rounds, I just, this is where they get used to the conditions. And, and as we've seen, I mean, they barely dropped games. So I, I just, I think that there was a lot of unnecessary um, chatter about that whole, um, we'll see how things go, especially um, in the later rounds. Of course, now they have the roof for the main courts. That's certainly a, a plus for the top players. They can get in their matches, especially if there's like a, a long rain delay and things get canceled. We'll see. But um, I just think that uh, these champions adapt. Yeah. Yeah, and also I think by now they've had the time to play with the ball. In fact, Rafa said in that presser they sent him the ball early. It's just that he, when he was playing with it in Mallorca, it's just totally different conditions because it was hot and the ball was bouncing a lot more. But I agree with 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 what Eric just said. I think you know you give an elite players enough time to hit the ball, they're going to adapt to any ball. And I'd love to see them one time just take a brand label off and give them a blank ball, see if they could really tell the difference and and name you know what. I remember the time at Wimbledon with uh, Sabalkova where she used to sniff the balls, and they, they did a test with her, and she was able to accurately identify by smell each ball. It was freaky. Like, she definitely could do it. But I, I bet a lot of players, if you gave them an unbranded ball, they wouldn't be able to tell you the difference. So I think I, it, maybe it was just he was just venting or stressing. And, you know, obviously he's a Babylon guy. It's a Babylon ball, so he would, probably would have preferred that. And, he, you know, he's successful with that, so you can understand it. But I think once they get going, you know, the ball's the ball. You just adapt to it. Now, the only thing I would add is that if the roof is needed yeah, later, later, a semifinal or final, that's a completely different condition. Obviously, from what I understand, the roof at the, the main court in Paris, it, it's not quite temperature controlled. It's still, you still feel like kind of a temperature outside, but it's still technically an indoor match. So that is another layer that we've never experienced before that we'll see what happens, especially if it's Absolutely, and you final. saw, I mean, last year when uh, the team Djokovic in the wind, I mean, Djokovic just got unnerved with the wind. Now you put Djokovic under a roof, he's got to be thrilled. And also you look at the 10-day forecast, they're forecasting rain almost every, I should say a chance of rain almost every single day for the rest of the tournament. I mean, I know that's a long-term forecast, but if that happens and the roof comes into play, yeah, that's, that's a big factor. I think it helps Djokovic. Well, I just came across this tweet from Miguel Sebra about the balls, which is interesting, so I'll read it. It says, Nadal previously won the title at RG with three different brands of balls, a Technofiber in 2005, which I don't remember, a Dunlop from 6 through 10, and then a Babolat for the rest of the years until this year. So he's trying to win with four different balls, and Eric's point is great. These players are so phenomenal. They're so good at adjusting. I think to your point, maybe the conditions do matter, but what matters more is the great player's ability to adapt. And then, of course, you see some players who are just kind of like suited for the conditions that do well. But if they come up with a great player who's who's um, good enough at adapting, they still won't. It's not like a, a guy that likes the conditions can just go up and take out an Adal, for instance. But we all thought it was going to be after we saw Rafa lose in Rome to Schwartzman and not like those conditions. We all thought he was going to be in big trouble, but he just comes to Paris in like a, in a different mindset compared to every yeah, other team. The one thing I just want to add quick on Rafa is that they played the Dunlop ball in Rome, and I know he, he, he seems to like that ball. So that is, a, you know, you're going from a Dunlop to a Wilson. But as 
just the closing on him is the adaptation point you just made. I think he's one of the best I've ever seen at that. And you go back to the U.S. Open before they had the roof. You know, notoriously, that one side of the court would get really, really windy. He played the wind so well in New York, and you're right on Flushing Bay. Chris, you know you've been there a lot. I mean, it does get windy there before they had the roof. And he was great at that. He's a great wind player, I think. So I think he'd much prefer, you know, without a roof, if, if, if just judging on what, what he's done previously. Do you think after what we've seen, you guys, and I'll let Eric start, do you think we've seen anybody from – who this tournament's big three, which I think consists of Djokovic, Nadal, and then maybe team just a tick lower, but this guy is pretty damn deadly on the clay and pretty confident after winning the U.S. Open. Do you think anybody's lost momentum or run into more trouble than you thought out of those three? No, I think, I mean, I think team's done a great job of kind of bouncing back from just a complete, you know, winning his first major, and obviously he said in press he hasn't had a lot of time to adjust and, you know, kind of let that all sink in. But if you're running on momentum, momentum's the best thing to have as a player. So um, he's again all again, and some of the focus again has always been on Djokovic and Nadal, of course, and Steam is just sort of kind of lurking in the draw there. So um, I, I think this is really sets up Team to play spoiler for, again for the final mm. yeah that's uh, here's here's my theory and then i'm going to throw it to you richard i think in my opinion and it's still early but right now i see novak is the favorite and for a very simple reason he doesn't have either of those in his half and, and it looks like those two are going to collide in the semis if things go as predicted and that's a stressful difficult encounter for both players we don't know who's going to win and novak can probably watch that while he's playing someone like i don't know Sitsipas or a rublev somebody who won't be as challenging that's why i give novak the slight edge a lot could change though what do you think richard yeah it's a fair point i mean team is a beast like he's shown me just his physical resiliency and also as eric said mentally to come back different surface totally different circumstances after the ultimate high of your career in new york and to be able to keep the ball rolling i've been really really impressed with what he's done this whole summer but you have to think at some point especially when that point is him against rafa assuming we get that match which everybody wants to see uh, you got to figure if it's a physical battle sooner or later he's human i mean it's got to catch up with him but boy he's shown me a lot so far the two i'm really intrigued to see is um you know sinners varev and uh dimitrov sits a pass not that i'm saying anyone gonna go really really deep beyond that but i just want to see the, that yep. those matches those players those matchups i think it'd be really exciting tennis yeah i like those eric what, what's been your um Who's been your favorite player to watch or favorite match to watch so far through seven days? Uh, that's a good question. I'm trying to roll through all the matches that I've seen. Um, I mean, just in terms of players, I mean, I've just been impressed with Tsitsipas. I've been impressed with Rublev, especially um, since they played that final in Hamburg and bounced back. Um, and, uh, you know, it's also just these uh, new players that we've talked about earlier. It's just nice to see them. Uh, kind of it is, right? emerge and uh, just, um, you know, the joy that they have in breaking through. And, um, yeah, and you know what? Also, Sasha Zarev, I mean, we ought to give him some credit as well. I mean, this guy <laughs> experienced what devastating loss in New York, and he's um, he could have crashed out early, but he is uh, persevering. And you, you never know, Sasha. He might have. I mean, this match with Center is going to be something to watch. But if he yeah. can get through there, 
Hey, he's kind of playing with house money. I mean, in some ways, he should he should have crashed out early. So he may be the sleeper in this whole thing. Yeah, I, I think so. He really had a tough time there with uh, Pierre Uge Herbera going five sets in three hour fifty nine minutes. Richard, who's who's been your favorite player to watch or match to see? Wow, that's a really tough because there's been so many good. Um... You know the Rub when Rublev came back against Sam Querrey earlier. That was was that first or second? That was really early oh, where wow. he was down and out. And Sam Querrey served for that match, and Sam Querrey was playing well the tiebreakers. He was just ripping the ball like no problem. And for Rublev to dig in like that, and he's played a lot of tennis this year. I think he's second most second most wins on the tour. I think. I mean, for him to dig in like that, he showed a that was great heart. I I was really impressed with that. Um, yeah, hatching off some of his matches I've seen, they've been they've been really interesting. I really like Sinner. I like watching him. I like his style. So, like Eric said, I'm I'm a, I'm pumped to see that, and I like seeing David Ferrer at, at the match. And I just always love David Ferrer, and I, I love seeing him with Zverev. I just think that's such a great uh, coach player partnership. So so I'm pumped up to see that. And Sitsipas has really really impressed me because remember he took a lot of heat after that blowing that courts match in New York, but also tweeting after. People are like, what the hell is this guy doing on Twitter? You just had the most brutal law. But you know, look, he handles it his way. He vents in his way. He grieves in his way, and he's come back really really strong. I'm really impressed with it, with how he's answered the bell. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yeah, what an asset Stefano Tsitsipas is to this sport. He's so entertaining on and off the court. His game's beautiful. I love watching him every single time he plays. And yeah, he's been one of my my high points. I mean, I was happy to see him fight through that five-setter. I think that might be a turning point in, in big picture in his Grand Slam career because he had a lot of tough breaks, starting really with uh, the match with Stan on Longland last year where he kind of failed to capitalize on a lot of opportunities. And then... I think he lost a couple first-rounders back-to-back at slams. And, of course, the six-match points blown against Borna Church was, was awful. So it's nice to see him. I've watched this guy named Daniel Altmaier from Germany, a qualifier today. And it was the first time I watched him because I didn't see his first-round victory over Lopez, which was nice. And then second round, he beat Struff. He is a fun player and a confident player, energetic player, and a guy that apparently idolizes Stan Varenka, so that was kind of cool. He does the whole point to the temple thing, and he's got the Yonex gear. It almost looks like a mini Stan or something. Um, he's, he's a fun player to watch. Just speaking of those players that Eric was talking about that just came from out of nowhere, it's really rewarding to see players that you know have been paying their dues somewhere. We don't know anything about them. They get no press, and then here they are, second week. It's cool. It's a great moment. It's you know, really cool, and just to pick up on what you said, the other thing I like is so many of the players left their tennis fans. Like, like Sitsipas today in press talking about when he was a kid and he would do his own tennis newsletter on Facebook and he would write about it. And Sebi Corder, like you said, who's a huge Nadal fan. I like that these young guys are fans of the sport, or Sinner was talking about watching 
all the players he watched growing up, and it seems like they're not just players, they're fans. They love the game. They have an interest in the history. It's really cool for the future. And there's so many of them are so young, like Altmaier, like you said, Sinner's 19, you know, Sebi Quarters. So they're so young. It's going to be great to see them develop. Your thoughts, Eric? I was just going to mention Martin Fuksovic, uh, who knocked out Medvedev. I mean, this guy is... Um, Ted Robinson, he's kind of like the Terminator. <laughs> he's built like the Terminator. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he's 28, but he's sort of having his kind of moment right now. And um, again, you never know. I mean, if he, he just came off a great win. So he's another player you kind of have to keep your eye on. Yeah. And he had such a bad record against top 20 guys going into that match. And by the end of that match, he had Medvedev destroying his racket, yelling at the cut. I mean, he just totally physically, mentally broke him down. Like, that's a great analogy, the Terminator, because he's such a ripped guy. I mean, he looks like he put his hand through the back wall. He's a strong guy. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's the first guy from Hungary to win a title last year he did it in geneva in 36 years um he, yeah and he's just so ripped it's ridiculous he, between him and rublev there'll be like one ounce of fat on that match in the round of 16 that'll be a, that'll be a fun one to match to, to watch rather a good one to bring up eric um so um, another thing that really excited me i think over the last couple of days and i talked to you guys like in our little pre-show warm-up was uh, the french you know we thought it was going to be a really horrible tournament for the french first of all there's no hardly any fans so that kind of ruins the excitement that we all feel when we watch a guy like monfils play on chatrier and, and the place goes nuts whether he makes a super deep run or not it's still magical it was cool to see hugo gaston and fiona ferro and caroline garcia all kind of represent and make that tournament special for the French. Definitely. And, um, you know, with the limited spectators uh, in Paris, now just a thousand spectators, um, they can now kind of gather around wherever they're playing on whatever court and kind of give them that um, atmosphere, the French atmosphere that we love to hear, um, especially happened today in, in Pharaoh's match. Um, they certainly were supporting her. So, um, yeah, and again, you know, a, a lot of French players over the year have felt the pressure of playing in Paris, and uh, maybe th this time it's different for these players because some of them are new to it and they're kind of relishing the opportunity. Caroline Garcia, I mean, she's definitely, you know, she's so much better than her ranking is right now. Um, maybe she's the one to have a, a deep run. Maybe she. this is finally the, the major where she can finally fly, fly into um, – Fly deep into the rounds, as they say. Yeah, yeah, I know, uh, <laughs> Richard. You were you were interested in that match. Garcia came into the, the Roland Garros with an eleven and nine career record here, a quarterfinal in twenty seventeen, um, playing better. And Svitolina just tough as nails, always, always a tough out. And and in my opinion, a potential champion at this tournament. Yeah, that's to me, that's a pick a match. And also former French Open doubles champion Garcia, so she's yeah. had success there. And you look at her Fed Cup, where she's had some big wins in Fed Cup, too. It almost seems like she's better under those conditions. And she has a winning record, I think, over Svitolina as well. I think that comes down to the second serves, because they can both be a little shaky. When Svitolina gets tight, I mean, she has some second serves, like sub-70 miles an hour, and, and Garcia can attack the return, especially off the second serve, and she can drive the ball down the line off both wings. So she goes into that match, or she should go into that match, with a lot of confidence, but like you said, Chris, Svitolina, you got to think sooner or later she's going to make a final or at least a semifinal here. She's too good not to. 
I think so. I think she's too tough and too consistent not to, and eventually she'll prey on a draw that kind of allows her to get through and maybe even win one. I think there are certain players that are bad matchups for her, but I, but I, I don't think Garcia's that player. But you're right. Garcia 3-1 and one against Fidelina with a win in Beijing in 2017, WTA Finals 2017, and Stuttgart in 2018. Three straight for Garcia over Svitolina. And, and maybe with the roof, the, those few fans there will sound even louder. But, I mean, for me, just looking at it, I know this is going to sound like a gross generalization, but I'd be really shocked if Halep doesn't get to the final. And if you gave me the choice, Halep or the field right now, I'd bet Halep. Although, you know, there's a lot of pressure on her, too, because you see everybody who didn't even make it to Paris and everybody left, and she's a strong, strong favorite. And that exerts a lot of pressure as well. Can I take it off script a little bit and ask, oh, did you have something, Eric? Feel free. No, I was just going to mention, let's not forget Laura Siegman, uh, the German who has such a crafty game and um, she's having her best Roland Garros ever. So just watch for her in that that lower section of draw that's sort of open. (laughs) And if she goes through history, we'll remember that double bounce call against (laughs) Madenzik. That's true. And, and that'll, you'll see that all over the French media, too. I guarantee you that. I always get fascinated by these players that, like, like Siegman, that comes in one in three lifetime at Roland Garros. You're just like, how is this person? I mean, it's happened in other places as well. It happened last year with Joe Conte, who I think was 0-4 at the French and, and right, reached the semifinal. Right. So it's just uh, I love that improbability and that craziness. But I do want to go off script and ask you, because Daniel Altmaier gave a really interesting press conference today, and I actually asked him um, if um, he sort of felt that with all these strange results and like young players beating uh, players that are more established in this draw, does he think does he think that people have less fear now than they ever did? And he said, he said, yeah, I think so. And he says he says he felt a big thing changed during the pandemic like he's feeling like the pandemic is a turning point for tennis meaning that somehow it knocked Nadal and Djokovic and the big three or the established forces in the game a little bit further over the hill do you guys think there's any credence in that do you think do you sense that the pandemic could mark like a certain a little bit of a turning point I mean it certainly did at the U.S. Open something changed um I'll just say I, it's possible. I think more, I think especially for a lot of these lower ranked players, it's more on the mental side. I mean, if you look at, I'm just thinking like Jeannie Bouchard, who had such a horrible last couple of years and she's actually, you know, turning the corner a little bit. And she said in press that the, the time away to kind of let her like reset and, you know, enjoy the game, enjoy playing. And I think, I, I, I don't know about it. It's going to knock off these great champions. Um, but I think it's just, it's allowed these, these other players more time to sort of work on their games and reset and so they, and they walk into this with sort of, you know, why not? I've, I've, I've been working hard and let's see what happens. But yeah. I think once the tours get back to hopefully, you know, their normal schedules, I don't, I don't think it's going to be like a, a, a complete sea change. You're talking about when, when, the, we, when we get back to normal in what, 2025? Yeah, something like that. Uh, well, uh, you mentioned something. You said, why not? And I think that that hit home with me because I think maybe people are thinking like, this is pandemic tennis. Like people are missing from draws, you know, like for instance, Ash Barty, Naomi Osaka on the women's side. Maybe the players are thinking this is just a strange thing and why not? So maybe the, their mentality, like the lower ranked guys mentality has changed because they just feel like, hmm, I don't know. It feels like it's no fans. It's, 
something that, you know, maybe I can do it. I, I, like it's a practice match kind of thing. I don't know, Richard. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, I don't think it's going to be like, you know, a, an era in history where we say like open era, pre-open era, you know, pandemic, post-pandemic. I don't think it's going to be that great of a schism and it's only, you know, a few events. So I think it's a little early to say, but I do think from a player perspective, it does level the fee. I think it does, especially with no fans, especially when you're in the bigger stadiums with no fans, because the fans alone can give you that rush, that adrenaline where it's just a mat. You're trying to control your breathing. Maybe you go too much. You have too much adrenaline. And I think without that, like Eric said, you can sort of in your mind just frame it as, hey, it's just like a like practice week. We're just playing practice sets, and then you can just play ball. So I think that takes – I think the fans are a big variable at any Grand Slam, but especially there because, you know, the fans can get on you there. It can yeah. turn a little bit uh, hostile. So, yeah, I do think in this case it is it is a factor. I just I think it's too soon to say if it's a long-term thing. But I just think for me personally in life, the pandemic, it is a different life when you walk down the street and you're just seeing people's eyes. and It does make you a little bit maybe more detached or a little – I don't know. I, I do think it – Psychologically, it is a difference, yes. And I'm going uh, by... Oh, please, Eric, hit it. I was just going to say, uh, Elena, said, Elena said something to that effect uh, after one of her matches. She said without the fans, you, she felt like a player can kind of drift away mentally yes, because yes. you're used to hearing the fans cheer and get invested, and it was just you and, like, you're just sort of... You're playing the scoreboard and, and your opponent, and that's it. You can sort of lose track a little because mm -hmm. you're not you're not hearing this sort of like the investment of the the, the fans behind you in the match yep and i would say one thing also going back to that coco match you could hear her at the end when she was struggling on serves like talking to herself trying to self-coach herself through that problem if you're the opponent with no fans like right. you definitely can hear that so that kind of pumps you up like wait a minute you know, she's talking to herself every between every serve almost. I'm, I'm in her head, or the serve thing is in her head. So I think it maybe it's harder to sort of conceal your cards emotionally if you're a player when you start talking and they're hearing everything you're saying. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm just kind of reading the tea leaves because uh, Sviontek came in after a first-round match and said that she went to New York and was so amped up because she had this belief that there was a big opportunity waiting for her. Like, you know, not all the players came over to the U.S. Open. She And she knows she's growing as a player. She's like, this is my chance actually to steal a slam, to, to come. And she said, I got so, like, a little bit too amped up and too many expectations. But it was funny just to read her mind a little bit to think that, wow, she saw that opportunity. She saw this as a chance, like there's a little bit of a maybe watered-down field and some, not everybody's really as prepared. Let's let's face it. A lot of players, and I don't think this is getting talked about too much. A lot of players are undercooked on clay right now, and they're just trying to find their way. Oh, sure. I mean, it's, oh sure. You, do you I see? mean, we talk about. I yeah, sorry. I mean, we always talk about like how Serena plays her way into a major because she often doesn't play many of the warm-up events. Well, that's what Nadal and Joke. I mean, Djokovic played. Um, they both played, but that's what they're doing. They're they're playing their way into this major because there was not the traditional clay court swing. So they're they're using these matches to play their way in. Yeah, and everybody is, I agree, under, undercooked. You have to not have as much time on the clay, obviously, but you're having to use these early matches to play your way in. Yep, and I think Rome in the past has been a lot a good barometer and looks fairly similar to what you face at Roland Garros, though of course not the same. But this year it was like complete opposite, and so that in, maybe increases the the effect that these players are sort of stranded and like feeling uncomfortable. 
what do you say to that, Richard? I agree. I think it, it, it's a mentality thing, but also it's interesting to see someone like Schwartzman be able to sustain what he did in Rome. And I think a lot of the stuff, you know, going back to what Eric said about playing their way in, I think a lot of the stuff Djokovic is doing with the drop shot is to get ready. I mean, he's always had a great drop shot, but to get ready for Rafa, he's looking yeah. at the big picture because he's got a re- he's got a really strong draw and he's been trying to be super efficient getting through it. You know, I think another thing that, that in regards to the different conditions is the also the limited entourages of the limited teams, although Rafa, you look at his box, he's got a ton of people in there. But someone like Djokovic, I think he only brought two two people. I think the I think it's only two or three with him. So that also, for the bigger players, that's usually a huge edge when they have the physio, the coach, the masseuse. I mean, they can, they can just afford to carry more people with him, whereas if you're a qualifier like Corder or like some Almir, some of these qualify, you just can't afford to do that at that stage in your career. So that also negates slightly or diminishes that, that advantage of the bigger, the bigger team for the bigger stars. Yeah. Parting shots, guys, we're going to wrap it up soon. Does, um, what can you say that sums up what you're feeling about the rest of this tournament? Who wants to go first? (laughs) I'll go first. I would say on the men's side, expect Djokovic Nadal. Fair enough. And on the women's side, prepare for another surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Good call. That's a a safe prediction. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's going to be Novak uh, uh, versus Rafa at the end, and I think it's going to be a good match, too, so I'm pumped to see that. And I'm not discounting anybody. I mean, there's some great stories, and I'm, I'm going to enjoy the matches to get to that point. On the women's side, I still like Halep going in, but given all these surprises and also the conditions, I mean, you could say someone like even Kvitova, who's a former semifinalist, if it's you know like this with the low bounce where the ball's not getting up, I mean, she can hit through it just about anybody in any circumstances. And I think what Eric said at the beginning of this whole talk we've had is spot on. I think the roof is going to be the big, the big variable. Ultimately, if the, if the forecast is what it, what it is now, I think the roof's going to really come into play semis and finals. And that's going to be the big variable. Mm. My parting shot is just going to be, is just going to be passion for clay court tennis. It's a, it's, it's a rough year. I think it's not ideal that, that it's being held in October and that it's, the conditions are the way they are. But I'm, I'm, for one, very thankful to be watching this. And I know it's, it's strange and there's no crowd, but I'm still loving it so much. And I'm looking ahead to nine days from now. And, yeah, it'll be nice to take a nap. Uh, that'll be cool. But I think, I think when this tournament's over, it's going to be a little bit of a reckoning about what's going to happen with tennis the rest of the year. So I think my advice to anybody listening is to really enjoy this while you can. I mean, there's players are starting to really get in position to, to, to make a historical run and take a shot at this tournament. And there's no asterisk. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a little bit cold. It's causing players to adapt. But I mean, the further we get into this, the more I kind of get like interested in all the, all the craziness that's, that's happening. And so it's a very, it's been a very memorable event. Absolutely. Agreed. Ah, very good. I thank you guys for joining on this first one-of-a-kind three-way call. It was very cool. And um, let's do it again maybe um, before the quarters or before the semis at the very latest. So thanks, Eric. Thanks, Richard. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you.
Thanks so much, guys. Good talking to you. Thank you. This edition of the Lucky Let Cord podcast is a wrap. Special thanks to Eric and Richard for joining us. Don't forget, you guys can check us out on the web, www.tennisnow.com. And please, if you like this podcast, we'd love it if you rate, review, subscribe. Check us out on Apple Podcasts. Just Google Lucky Let Cord Podcast and voila. You can also find us wherever you find your podcast, and we'd really appreciate those reviews. And what else can I say? You guys can find us on social if you want. How about Facebook.com slash Tennis Now? On Twitter, at Tennis underscore Now. Thanks again for listening. You guys enjoy the rest of Roland Garros, and stay tuned. We'll be back in a few days with more. <laughs>